Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years, and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from, and what drives them forward. I find people are to be a lot less self-conscious when they can't immediately look at the picture of themselves on the laptop or on the back of the camera. I like that I have more control over the situation because they just have to trust me. For this episode, I sit down with Hayley Louisa Brown, founder of Brick Magazine, a punk zine about hip-hop. As a professional photographer, she fell out of love with the world of commercial fashion and piled all her money and love of film photography into doing her own thing. This was recorded in the Lyric Studios in Hammersmith. So very excited to have Haley Louisa Brown, HLB, um, on the Stories of Growth podcast. Uh, we are here in the, the Lyric in Hammersmith in actually a proper recording studio. So this is actually a big step up from the usual. Um, so hopefully the sound will be impeccable. Yeah. Uh, so very welcome. Uh, yeah. Welcome to you. Yeah. Excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Cool. Yeah. So why don't we start at the beginning? Um, sure. For those who don't know mm-hmm. of you or have seen your work, uh, yeah. maybe just a quick introduction in terms cool. of what you've been up to the last few years. Sure. So um, I'm a photographer and I founded a magazine called Brick in 2015. So since then, I've kind of been doing both simultaneously <laughs> as best as I can. Um, the both being? Oh, both being. I still work as a photographer and run Brick. I would say Brick is more my full-time job now, but I try and do both as seamlessly as possible, which is not always the easiest thing to do. But yeah, I I started out in photography, so I was doing that for a few years before Brick came into being. Um, I was mostly doing fashion editorial stuff and realized that Actually, I didn't really love doing that. So um, Brick kind of came from wanting to have a place to find to find a home for the work that I wanted to make that I couldn't find a home for, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. So that just building on that mm-hmm. in terms of the you know, founding concept for Brick yeah. and like an itch that you're wanting to scratch mm-hmm. or, you know, what was that thing that you felt that was missing that, you know, because when it came out and, you mm-hmm. know, you, we know from, you know, we, we had you in our space yeah. downstairs for the launch. You launched tradition one. And, you know, it's a personal love of hip hop yeah. and, you know, very much from mm-hmm. a UK point of view, it definitely was fresh. But, yeah. you know, was there a bigger purpose or a, a bigger goal there? Well, going back to when I was just working as a photographer, I was going to a lot of hip hop shows and general music shows around London anyway. And I was sort of seeing this new wave of the way that young people were consuming music and the way that hip hop had reinvented itself. It seemed to to me at the, at the time there was people like you had Odd Future with Tyler, the creator, sort of causing this kind of punk disruption within within the genre especially because of 
the way that they sort of found success through the internet rather than the traditional record label route. Um, so there was a lot of artists that were gaining these huge followings from online, from a natural organic growth of fandom online rather than old school ways of breaking a new artist and going to these shows. It was such a intense atmosphere there. It was really exciting and it felt like something. It felt like a, a movement and it felt like there was something in it and you would go and there would be loads of people moshing and throwing themselves around and it did feel like the punk shows that I used to go to when I was much younger and from that I just had this little idea in my head that I wanted to make a punk scene that looked at hip-hop because I I would take my camera to shows and take portraits of people and do that kind of thing so I was originally thinking oh maybe I can make a zine that kind of has that sniffing glue slash kind of energy from the 70s but with hip-hop artists so it was very much going to be like a DIY newsprint zine situation and as happens in life I got busy with work and this idea just sort of kept getting pushed to the back of my schedule and my 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 time because you know if you get offered a job and you need the money you're like oh that needs to be prioritized because I have to pay my rent so that was kind of how it went for a couple of years and then yeah, I got to a point where I was shooting a lot of commercial fashion stuff and I hated it. And <laughs> I just got to a point where I thought, if I don't stop now and do this thing that I've been thinking about for the last three years, I'm going to end up in a career that I hate and I won't be able to break away from it and do it. So I just said, "Enough." that's it. That's it. I'm not doing this anymore and I used the money that I'd saved up from shooting all this commercial work to make brick. And so that was the next year of my life was, yeah. So just putting some timestamps in, if yeah. issue one was 2015. Yeah, it came out April 2015. Then, you know, this was three, two to three years prior yeah, to that. So, so in terms of that scene and that uh -huh. world. Like 2011, 2011, 2012? 2012, uh -huh. UK hip hop. Yeah. I mean, it's, hip hop is an underground, but, you know, yeah. some of the subcultures mm -hmm. coming through yeah, were absolutely. in terms of the US influence and that new generation yeah, of hip hop. So, exactly. you know, can you give some, you know, where, when, who, in terms of some of those moments that you yeah. felt required capturing? Yeah, uh, there's one that really sticks out in my mind, which was the first time ASAP Rocky came to the UK um, and he played at Cargo yeah. in Shoreditch. I don't know if it is it still there. Cargo? Yeah. Yeah, it's still there. Oh, yeah. Under, <laughs> I don't know. I don't really go out anymore. I'm a grandma. But yeah, it was um, under one of the railway arches in Shoreditch. And I remember going and standing, waiting for the guy to find my name on the, on the list. And the whole street was full of kids. Cars, taxis were like beeping, trying to get through, couldn't get through. It was a full from the one side of the pavement to the other, people everywhere. So when was this? I think that was 2011. Yeah. And it it just, it was crazy because you, I'd never seen a reaction like that. And it was sort of around, I feel like 
it was around the sort of time that Supreme had come to London and there was kind of more of that. And like obviously 1948, Nike was around the corner and I feel like they were all having their moments at the same time. So it sort of felt like a bit of a cultural mm -hmm. snowball happening. So yeah, being there and then getting into the into the show and standing at the back with my camera shooting pictures of people crowd surfing and people going crazy I just stood there and that's kind of when I realized that there was something really special kind of happening that I hadn't seen for a long time because I think when growing up all of the hip-hop stars that you saw were people like Ja Rule and these very commercial, glossy, featuring on a J-Lo song kind of artists, there wasn't really anything on that underground level that had made its way, as far as I knew, over to the UK. So being, I think, fully immersed in something that felt really fresh and DIY and um, authentic was the real catalyst for starting Brick. Interesting. So is it is brick around subcultures then of music, or this um, is like hip hop? And yeah. I, I mean, hip hop is hugely mm -hmm. influential from yeah. the late eighties, exactly, and has morphed and mm -hmm. you know influencing every category within that genre. But you know, with an editorial mm -hmm. view of brick of you know what goes in, who yeah. goes on the cover, and the covers yeah. are phenomenal. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, where does that? I guess sort of how do you grow as mm. a as a as a publication yeah. along? along with these subcultures as they yeah. start coming up? Well, I think for for us, it's very much the phrase that jumps to mind um, is hip hop and hip hop adjacent, which okay. I think is kind of dorky, but it, it sort of makes the most it's sense. Convenient. Yeah, because as you, as you sort of said, the the scope of hip hop's influence is huge. And I think now more than now more than ever, there's so much influence from fashion to art to culture in general hip-hop artists have a crazy amount of cachet in all of those fields and I think there's a lot of sort of fluidity between genres which I love because it means that we have such an amazing space to free flow between so for the issue issue six which is out now um the covers are Kamasi Washington Dev Hines, The Internet, and Sheck West. And I feel like they're all so different, but they all make perfect sense. And there's that idea of appreciating things which are not necessarily dead on in terms of, like, you don't have to be a rapper to be featured in the magazine. That's not what it's about. It's very much about hip-hop as a culture and an influencer for all forms of culture, like Kamasi Washington is a jazz musician, but he did a lot of the instrumentals for Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly album. And he has all of this influence and this very important links to hip hop. And I think it's great that we can give some shine to artists like him, who perhaps some people who love that Kendrick record would not know much about Kamasi and how integral he was to the creation of that. So I think the idea of learning and 
with that, I hope that doesn't sound patronizing because that's not what I mean it to sound like just in terms of discovering. Discovering, that's a better word. Yeah. yeah. I like that people buy the magazine for an artist that they love and then discover a bunch of stuff when yeah. they open it. How, how important is the UK as part of your story? And, you know, again, suitably well-documented of cultural melting pot from mm-hmm. generations yeah. and influencing you know, culture, yeah. whether that's art or fashion mm-hmm. or music. But why do you feel or sort of how much is Brick UK mm-hmm. or being a UK London-based publication yeah. you know, important to you? Um, I think it's really important. We always try and have at least one UK artist as a cover. So we had Dev Hines this time. Last time we had DWE. Time before that we had Georgia Smith. Um, time before that we had Gigs. So we always try and spotlight the London, or I say London, UK generally talent that we that we have. And I think it's, I kind of think that's what make, makes Brick interesting is that we have that unique point of view from the UK because there's, we have so much culture here. Obviously, we have so many youth cultures and have had such impact on global culture generally um, that I think it's really special to be able to find these great UK artists to have in the magazine as well. Um, and I think we are so lucky to have such a strong independent publishing scene here. There are so many amazing magazines that exist that I don't think could have existed anywhere else. I think we have a really... Why do you think that is? I don't know. I I really don't know. I just, I think that, I don't know. I think we have that, like, London has always had that DIY spirit, and I don't know if it's that or the... Coming back to your punk aesthetics. (laughs) Exactly. But I, I just feel like here there's so many amazing people making amazing publications and... I think, yeah, I don't think that it would have had the same impact had I started it in the US. And I think that's because there is so much in the way of, even though I don't think there's anything similar to Brick in the US, there's a lot more music publications that cater to that area of music, like XXL and, um, why has my mind gone blank? I keep thinking of ones that don't exist anymore, like my favorite, Ego Trip, which was great, but there's a lot of hip hop. Grand Grand Royals up in there. Yeah, there's Beasties a, from back in the day. Yeah, there's yeah. so many like great. That was one of the main inspirations was looking at like the source and stuff from the '90s and seeing yeah. how incredible their photo shoots and stuff were then. Whereas now, I feel like a lot of these titles have either gone online or they've lost that sense of identity I think there's a I think obviously because of the internet the artists I think a lot of the time don't give as much time to titles for photo shoots and things but you look at there's some covers there's one of Wu-Tang recreating that really famous um shot with the with the American flag yeah um and pretending that they're in a war zone and doing all this crazy stuff. And I was like, how many days did you have with them to shoot that, firstly? And how did you get them all in one place at the same time, secondly? But there are all these things in that one of um, Lauren Hill where she's painted like a Hindu goddess on... I think that's the source as well. But there are all these things, and I'm just... 
I feel like now there's a lot less of that creative excitement and freedom given to print titles. So I kind of wanted to bring that back to the forefront. Continuing that brain of thought, yeah. I've got loads of questions. I'm trying to put them in the right order. Um, formats. Yeah. You shoot mostly exclusively on film. I do. And you prefer print. I do. And, you know, there's this thing called the internet. I've um, heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> just your thoughts. And then leading on to, mm-hmm. you know, the commercial question, yeah. which is a challenge and a business yeah. model. And I've had mm-hmm. many a conversation with Steve at Stack, who's yeah. a good friend and independent publishers. Yeah who I know of mm-hmm. many, <clears throat> just in terms of the business models. Yeah. So maybe start with formats uh-huh. and, and with the commercial models. Sure. Um, yeah, I... Because film ain't cheap. No, sir. No, it's <laughs> not. I Honestly, the other day I went and bought a box of 800 ISO colour film and it was £60 for five rolls. Wow. And I almost cried when I gave them my card. I was like, really? And that's not even processing No, yet. exactly. It's ridiculous. It's, I don't know how people, I don't know how a lot of young photographers do it because it's so expensive. I mean, I love it. I think I love it. Why do you love it? I love the um, distance that it gives me from the person I'm photographing Um I always find people are a lot less... Distance in physical in, distance? No, sorry. Just in terms of... Distance in terms of... I find people to be a lot less self-conscious when they can't immediately look at the picture of themselves on the laptop or on the back of the camera. Right. I like that I have more control over the situation because they just have to trust me. They just have to do their thing. And I'm like, cool, you'll see them in a bit. And... I like the... How do artists usually respond to that? Pretty good. People are normally good about it. I mean, <laughs> they have no choice, really. <laughs> and the, when they're like, can I not see them? And I'm just like, no, let's continue. And it's it's normally... I've never, ever had an issue with it. Um, I like that. And I also think it makes me a much more careful and considerate photographer because I think if I had a digital camera, I would be wild because I'm wild enough with film and then I'm like why did I shoot so many roles that's going to cost me so much money so um, this is a self-discipline yeah. imposed mm-hmm. by film yeah <laughs> well <laughs> I yeah it 50 quid exactly it does and it's it I think it puts you in a position where you you think a lot more about what you're doing and mm-hmm. there's been so many times where I've put my camera up to my eye and been like that doesn't look right let's change it whereas I'm sure if I was on digital I would think let's just take a few and see how they look And I think it makes you, I'm not speaking for everyone because I know great photographers that do shoot digital that nail it and have a process. But for me, I like, I like film. I like the, the, how careful you have to be with it. And I like that you have to know how to use stuff to make good pictures. You can't fake it really. So a lot more of the art and the craft that like, goes with the yeah. with the uh, with the with mm-hmm. the skill. Yeah, I like the physicality of it. I like having tangibility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get that. I'm really bad at printing in the darkroom, but um I go to Labyrinth in Bethnal Green and 
they, John and Liam, in their print for me, and they are amazing. And I love the process of going and working on that and seeing the physical print and being able to do things to it and make mm. it I get that. special. Yeah. So how, if your films are 60 quid a roll... <laughs> For five um, rolls. For five <laughs> rolls, sorry. Uh, what, where's the, I mean, obviously if you're a commercial photographer, yeah. but, mm-hmm. it, you know, bringing that process yeah. to, you know, mm-hmm. self-publishing a magazine. Yeah. Yeah, how does that, I mean, it's not how do you justify it because the, there's no justification no. required in terms of quality. No. But in terms of, I guess, the business of brick. Yeah. What's, what's the view on that? Um. I mean, I pay for my own film when I shoot for Brick. Brick doesn't pay for it. Um, so it's sort of my decision on how I how I do that. And I think I'm, I just want stuff to be really good. And I, I feel like I know that, it, like, if I want to shoot 30 rolls of film to make sure that I get what I'm trying to get, I'll do it. And that's, that's on me. To, to do that but I don't have like a, any laws that you have to shoot on film if you want to shoot for brick I commission everything that is in the magazine and I choose photographers based on if I like their work I don't think about whether they shoot on film or not it just depends on the work that they make and how they how they do that but yeah we are um obviously we have no money Really, we're a completely independent title. So um, it's it's a really difficult one generally because I know from shooting so much editorial that there's a... I think it's mostly in London as well, which is weird, that you just you don't get paid for shooting editorial. And so you have all these people shooting editorial for all of these fashion magazines and other, whatever titles it is, not like doing it out of their own pockets. And as much as I can, I try and cover people's costs, but it's not always viable for for the business because we just can't afford it, which people don't talk about it, I think, either, about how hard it how hard it is. But it is really hard. <laughs> it's really difficult to make it work. But we do our best. Well, that is independent publishing, right? Uh-huh. And the challenges that comes with self-publishing and yeah. self-financing. Mm-hmm. And I think that you are not alone in that no. challenge from mm-hmm. conversations I've had with similar self-publishers. Yeah. The, you know, it's not easy. And, no. you know, we published our own magazine. Yeah. For the, you know, we had two iterations of it, but the grown-up version of it, like mm-hmm. the proper magazine. <laughs> yeah, it's not cheap. No, and no. Unless you can justify the reason it exists, which to mm-hmm. us was very much a you know a business decision because yeah. it was putting us out in front of the right people. Yeah. But you know we weren't necessarily in the business of magazines. You know, yeah. We've, got almost... an, we've got an agency business that yeah. sits behind it, uh-huh. which subsidizes it and pays for it. Yeah. So it's just another way of us showing up. Yeah. Um, and you know sometimes you. You you question that in terms of why am I doing this again? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, no, it's just good to hear that. So maybe just delving mm-hmm. a little bit deeper on some of those sure. challenges and and you know that drive and that story coming forward. Mm-hmm. What 
maybe share an experience or two just to, you know, you were questioning it all and yeah. what was it that kept you going? What, when I, with photography, when or, I made the switch or, or just generally or just with generally break. in terms yeah. of some of those key, <laughs> key moments? Yeah. Um, it was, it's, it's really hard because I didn't know, <laughs> I still don't know what I'm doing. I know more than I did when I started it. Does anybody? No, exactly. And that's the thing, you learn so much as you go. Like, I had no idea that magazines get pulped after their print run. And I remember talking to my printer and distribution people on the phone when the first issue was about to be brought off the shelf. And I said to them, so what happens now? Do, do I give you my address and they'll all be shipped back to me? And they said, no, the covers all get ripped off and then they get pulped and destroyed. And I cried on the phone. It was the first time I'd ever done it. And I was so upset because it's this thing I put all of my savings and all of this hard work into and all of the ones that didn't sell were just going to be destroyed. And I feel like things like that you don't learn about until it's happening to you. So then that was at one point where I thought, oh, my God, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. Um yeah, and I've kind of been thinking that ever ever since. No, I'm kidding. Um, sometimes, no, sometimes it's real ups and downs. It's real ups and downs because sometimes it's great. Like when I get, like yesterday I got some pictures in for the new issue and they're so good and I was so excited to see them and I, I was so happy and excited that we get to commission people to make these amazing things and that we get to be the people that put it out into the world and that's really special and exciting but then equally when you're thinking how are we gonna afford to print this one why are we still doing this shouldn't it be getting easier by now you end up in such a different mindset and it's it's really difficult to kind of justify it. And I, I love doing it and I love, I love it. And I think if I didn't really love it, I wouldn't still be doing it. Um, but yeah, seeing people's reaction to it and people buying it from the website and all of that kind of stuff is really, makes me really happy because I think people must like it if they're buying it um, and paying a ridiculous amount for postage because it's so heavy. Um but yeah, the it's a real real push and pull with the with a lot of the emotions that go into making it. Yeah, yeah. No, understandable. If it's that you know personal and that much yeah. love has been poured mm -hmm. into it, and you know I'm with you on the distribution world. Yeah, <laughs> my first response to that was just one of disruption, mm -hmm. and surely there's got to be a better way. Yeah, and it's like, um, you know, regardless of the world of fashion, mm -hmm. publications and distribution circulation figures that we all know are made up. Um, uh, honestly. And it becomes a trophy, a business card or whatever yeah. analogy you want to use to justify mm -hmm. a, a relationship uh, when actually bringing that down to you. And this is where your punk zine yeah. analogy is bang on. Yeah. Is DIY, self-publish, self-distribute. Yeah. And, you know, that world is changing and there yep. are new new 
routes to market, yeah. but direct mm -hmm. has always got to be it's preferable, tough. even if it is yeah. know, more work. I mean, we keep it real in the media pack. We keep the numbers yeah. real because it's crazy when you see the numbers in other people's and you're like, that's such a lie. And everyone, <laughs> I feel like everyone knows it's a lie, but everybody has to put their numbers up so that they look comparative to other places. It's a bummer because I think it gives a real false full sense of success. I, I mean, not success as such, but in terms of size and power. And I think it's, I think it's a bummer that it makes other magazines look like tiny. I mean, we are a tiny little baby, but when you have other titles that, you know, print 10,000 saying they print 250,000, I'm like, who is that for? Really? <laughs> Come on. But yeah, I also... But it all depends, coming back to my point, yeah, yeah. why you're doing it. <laughs> who that is for is for yeah. the advertisers, for the mm -hmm. media pack to justify yeah. whatever their yeah, rate yeah. card is on the pages. Yeah, it's So, true. you know, you remove that or you change that yeah. or you create a different model for that. Yeah, which we're trying to do. Then, you know, it just, yeah, it, it adjusts that approach. And, yeah. You know, there's no easy answer here. That's no. just why the... I think now, especially, and you're exactly right, certainly from what I've seen in terms of independent publishing, specifically in London. Yeah. And, you know, it's vibrant. Yeah. And it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's so um, good. So, you know, that is, there's still demand. Yes. And, is. which is reassuring. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, yeah, I guess, navigating that. Yeah. Moving on slightly. Yeah. From Punk to Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and your second show you had downstairs yeah, at ours. My with, favorite thing. Uh, friends at Ace and Tay. Yes. Um, tell me about Elvis. <laughs> um, so. Or your relationship with him. Yeah. I mean, I wish I had a relationship with him. <laughs> let's be real. Um, I mean, that's quite a step, no? <laughs> yeah. Johnny Ron um, to Elvis. I don't know. No? Okay. Come I mean, on, tell the story. no, no, no. <laughs> I'm a bit of a, you might have guessed, I'm a bit of a sucker for a youth culture. I love it. I love reading about all of the different ways that young people rebelled and expressed themselves throughout the years. And I know Elvis did not invent rock and roll and all of that, but he is such a huge cultural pillar. The way that he has lived on past his death, I find it so interesting to look at the people who have done that because there's not a lot of cultural icons who have remained alive after after they've died. You have him, you have like James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, these kind of icons from years ago that for some reason still resonate with people now. And I find that really interesting. Um, I've always... Interesting because it exists, like the, yeah. the legacy of uh -huh. the legend. Yeah, I just think it's really fascinating because you... So it's not about him, it's about... I mean, it's kind of about him. I mean, obviously it's about him, yeah. but it's about it's, post him, yeah. post Elvis. Yeah, it's, it's very much a post Elvis landscape that I was interested in just because I feel like I definitely, I find the image of him really interesting I mean he's a babe when he was young obviously but he's just like him as a as a person has just become a is he's just like an icon he's not even a person anymore he's Elvis he's this one word thing 
that exists. And when I was younger, maybe like 12 or 13, I think I discovered him and found him really interesting, watched a bunch of his films, was just really interested in the whole idea of how he became what he is. Um, and I've always wanted to go to Graceland. I've always wanted to go there. I found the the idea of the fact that that place exists to be, again, a really fascinating thing. So um, I'd wanted to do a project on it for a really long time. And when this Ace and Tate creative fund opportunity came up, I was like, this is the perfect, perfect time. Because with having Brick and working, as you know, like, you have ideas for things and they just get put on the back burner because you have other stuff that you need to deal with. And this Graceland thing was one of those projects. Um, so yeah, I went there and just photographed young fans. Um, again, because of this whole legacy thing, I was so interested at in why a 16 year old boy or girl or non-binary young person, whatever, would come to Graceland and I was like is it because your parents love him is it because your grandparents love him have you found him organically and thought it was really interesting and like the varied answers I got from people that I spoke to was so it was such a weird it's such a weird place but there was one one boy who is a huge fan his parents don't like Elvis and he was was coming as a trip, as a gift before he went off to college in the fall. And that's what he asked for was to come to Graceland. And there was another boy who had come over on a tour group from Australia. He was about, I think he was like 21. And it was literally, it was the cutest thing. It was him and like a huge group of old women from Australia. And he's just this young boy. And he was like, oh, I just love him. <laughs> and I was chatting to him and I was like, this is so weird that you have chosen to come on your own <laughs> with, a bunch of with a bunch of old women from Australia to Graceland and you're having the best time. And it was just meeting all of these different people. It was really interesting. I, yeah. I, Any conclusions, deductions um, from that exercise? It was, it was weird. I went, I went twice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back this year as well. I'm going to keep shooting um but it was it was actually probably the best two years to go because um in 2016 um it was the old Graceland um super weird loads of like dingy little weird gift shops and very old-fashioned horrible carpets um and then when we went in 2017 they'd completely had the place refurbished and it's like Disneyland Okay. So it was this crazy, yeah, it was this huge contrast in how people consume it. Whereas before it did, it felt like a shitty roadside attraction um, because it was that kind it of, was. yeah, it like hadn't been touched for years and years and years. And it was this weird little sort of row of cabins with like, there's like seven or eight gift shops all selling the same stuff right next to each other. And it was a really odd place, but because it was so old, it was, there was a lot of freedom. Like you could kind of walk around anywhere really. And now that it's been <clears throat> renovated, there's like ticket 
barriers and like at a train station you have to put your ticket through and go through the little turnstile and all of this kind of stuff and it feels a lot more like a money making soulless setup now which which sucks so um yeah it's I feel like the I mean the people that love him will still go but I preferred it when it was a bit shit a bit shit because it's more of a, there's more of an atmosphere there. It felt a lot more real and yeah, no, it, it's it was very eye opening. But Memphis more so than Graceland, which is why I want to go back because mm. I just want to keep shooting more in Memphis generally because it's a weird place. I loved it. Coming back early years mm-hmm. and just trying to unpack a little, understand a little bit of your fascination of subcultures and, yeah. you know, photography mm-hmm. as a craft, as yeah. a discipline. Was there, you know, a moment when you realised that, you know, photography was a thing uh, in terms of yeah. where you grew up? Were your parents influential? <laughs> no. Like what? <laughs> I mean, my, what, what are those early years of um, my, HLB? <laughs> well, my dad's a builder. He now has his own construction company um, and is really great. Um, he's always worked really, really hard. Um, and my mom used to be a hairdresser. And when I was a teenager, she retrained to be a midwife. Um, so not any kind of graphic designer parents or whatever. But um, yeah, I grew up in the countryside and we were um we lived in like a trailer for a few years when I was really little so I was like maybe five or six um Where, whereabouts um countryside you toward like between Guildford and Portsmouth okay like hey, Hampshire yep sort of way um so down the A3 yes exactly down the A3 um that doesn't sound very picturesque, does it? The countryside <laughs> sounds way better than about an hour down the A3 from here. Um, but yeah, so lived kind of in the middle of nowhere, didn't have anything around me. It was like a 20-minute drive to the nearest train station. Um, so I didn't really grow up having any sort of access to... Culture. Culture as such, like... I just went to like a regular school um, and hung out, like played with my friends. I was always really into like drama, obviously, Um, when I was a kid and the more creative side of stuff, like drawing at home and all of that kind of thing. And I, I kind of, I think I'd always wanted to do more creative stuff. Like when I went to secondary school and we had to choose our options, I did like drama and art and graphics and all of those kinds of things and um yeah I knew I was always like I want to be a fashion designer and I think that's because it was like the only thing that I could actively like see around me like when on like a rare occasion when I would get like a Vogue magazine or something I'd be like yeah yeah maybe I'll be a fashion designer because it was the only thing I could really think of I don't think at that point I really understood that there were people that took those pictures and there was someone that designed that magazine and all of that kind of stuff. And then I went to college and I did a BTEC in art 
Um, and then it's so stupid. I was uh, at Alton College um, where they actually, I remember like their sort of crowning glory was that Russell, what, is it Russell Watson, that comedian? It's like blonde. He has like a show on BBC Three. But they'd always be like, Russell Watson's an alumni. And I was like, cool, great. But no, it was actually a really lovely college. I really enjoyed it there. Um, and doing BTEC art literally meant I just did art all the time. And it was really eye-opening for me as someone that had just done GCSE art and just been like drawing with charcoal or whatever. It was cool that they were showing us all of this stuff that I had no idea existed. And I remember them setting us a photography brief for one of the projects we were doing. And I, at that point, had changed from deciding I was going to be a fashion designer to a graphic designer. Because I think that was like maybe a couple months after I realized graphic designer was a job. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Um, and we shot some images for a project. And I distinctly remember I shot some pictures of my friend Aaron um, with a stripe over his nose like Adam Ant. And I like distinctly remember shooting them on a, this is this is the real kicker, on a three megapixel digital camera, Boom. which was probably pretty high, high standards at the time. Um, and my BTEC teacher saying, these are good, you should, you should do photography. And that was it. And I was like, maybe I will do photography. So then we had like a pretty good setup. What was the name of that teacher? Um, it was um, Mark. I can't remember his last name. But he was um, married to another teacher there and they were really cute and they always used to teach us. <laughs> they both taught BTEC. They were very cute. Um, but, yeah, he was like, yeah, maybe you should do, uh, should do photography. So then I was like, that's obviously what I should, should do. So then I just um, started going to the darkroom at college a lot and they were pretty good. They just used to give us film, which I feel like now you would have to pay for it. I don't know. I don't know whether they had some, like, deal with Ilford or something, but they used to, like, give us black and white film like it was going out of fashion. Um, so I sort of just used to spend a lot of time in there messing about. Um, yeah, and no, at that point I was like, want to be Annie Leibovitz. That was the, the thing I was like, whoa, Annie Leibovitz is amazing. I remember watching a Vogue documentary um, where she shot, um, Natalia, Vol oh, I can never say her last name. She's like incredible supermodel um, as Alice in Wonderland. And she had all these crazy sets. And I was like, one of her going through a glass and one of her like in a tree with the Cheshire cat. And it was this really big spread in Vogue, American Vogue. And I remember seeing the documentary and being like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. This is what I want to do. Um, yeah, so that was when I... I went to London College of Fashion, did fashion photography degree. And I was like, went in being like, I want to be a fashion photographer and came out being like, do I want to be a fashion photographer? <laughs> but yeah, we, I had some, my teachers at university were the, were the best. We had Mark, Mark and James LeBon taught us and um, Itai Duran and Kelly Disley and they all ruled and they were so good at like just opening my eyes up to all of the stuff I had never seen before in terms of photography and how you could be a photographer 
and that it didn't mean that you had to shoot this crazy high-gloss Annie Leibovitz extravaganza. Yeah, so... And then where, where was music in that journey? Mm. Um, Constant? Always, always. I grew up in a house that... House slash trailer. Um, <laughs> um, that my, my dad's a big music guy my granddad's a big music guy grew up listening to like elvis, elvis fans no actually okay. my dad is like mariah carey boys to men <laughs> and my uncle <laughs> yeah yeah so smooth, smooth operator yeah yeah and then my uncle seymour um is from um oh my god how have i forgotten the name of the island that he's from it's really bad but he's from um there's not many islands in the UK. It's not. He's not from the UK. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he's um, from the. He's from the West Indies, but I can't remember what island okay. he is from. Um, but he had like really good records, like Herbie Hancock, and then like classics like Shakadimus and Pliers. Um, and we were there. We were at my auntie Marion and Uncle Seymour's house like every Saturday. So I used to have that at the weekends. And then my mom likes like the human league and stuff so I had like a lot of stuff going on and my granddad is like a mad country guy so I had a lot of like Johnny Cash and that's a pretty good it's a pretty you know, big education. mix yeah and like to this day one of my favorite songs is um don't it make my brown eyes blue by Crystal Gale because my nan my nana used to play it in the car all the time when I was a kid and I have such distinct memories of sitting on you know those like beaded wooden seat protectors yeah, yeah, people yeah. used to have in their cars really have distinct memories of feeling that on my back and hearing that song on the radio um but yeah what, I've what just, car did you drive oh it was like a blue i don't remember what it was but it was like a big very boxy old station wagon type scenario but yeah and i remember you know it's the weirdest thing isn't it what memories associate with music and smells and stuff but yes I had a lot of different a lot of different music growing up and then you know when you get to like 13 14 and you start figuring out like you realize who David Bowie is and then you're like oh my god this is amazing that's like the best feeling when you discover an artist that has a huge back catalog and it's like when you discover a series on TV and you realize there's been five seasons already and you're like, I can binge all of this stuff. <laughs> and so I feel like there was a lot of that when I was growing up, like discovering David Bowie and discovering all of these other people that were really interesting and had all this back catalog. So a lot of that. And then, yeah, I got really into like hip hop and stuff. I remember, I think I've said this in like a bunch of things when I've spoken to people in the past, but another very strong memory of seeing the California Love video, Tupac and Dre. And it's like Mad Max out in the desert video when I, I think we got like, I think I was at one of my relatives' house and they had Sky. And I remember seeing it on like MTV and being like, whoa, what is that? And so... Yeah, I think that was Sky was very much the portal for me discovering music and my cousin Becky, who was always going to garage raves. And when she'd drive me around places in her car, she'd like be like, listen to this. And then she'd like 
put all these old like BBK mixtapes on and stuff. And yeah, so lots of different avenues. Pre-internet music discovery was real. Really had to work for it. You did. <laughs> so where, where next? Um, yo, more bricks? Yeah, I hope mm. so. And number seven coming up? Yeah, number seven's out next Any month. Any other, you know, side hustles, passion projects that are yeah. bubbling? Um, I'm going to go back to Memphis to shoot more. Um, I want to make a book, like a big book, out of that Graceland Memphis project. That was because obviously... the and sell it in the gift shop. Sell it in the gift shop. In all seven of them. Can you imagine? That would be the absolute dream. When I went there, I did say to him, I was like, um, I emailed their PR person and said, hi, I'm coming to, I'm going to be taking some pictures. Like, can I shoot in? Because they had just closed down the, there's a hotel, the Heartbreak Hotel, obviously, obviously. that's right next to Graceland. And they've just, they were just shutting it to refurb it because they've, they've built this huge, ridiculous, like, fancy hotel on the opposite side of the street it's another symptom of them redoing Graceland which is really sad and I asked if I could go in and take any pictures of the hotel and they were like we would not like to have anything to do with your unofficial Graceland project and I was like okay fine um so I don't think they'll be having me in the gift shop there anytime soon but yeah I want to go back and shoot more of that so that's something that is very much still happening and then I mentioned to you before we started recording I'm starting a podcast which I'm really excited about um where I'm going to be talking to women in the music industry who aren't necessarily at the forefront in terms of visibility so like people that work at record labels and people that have had a real impact in music but are often I think I feel like overlooked is the wrong word but they're not names that you would necessarily know if I said them but when you hear what they've done in their career you'll be like wow how did I not know who this person was so I'm really excited about that that's gonna be good and yeah I did a workshop last week and I had so much fun I want to do some more of those too what was the workshop it was on the importance of original research so um sort of talking to I had 10 people came who were young people it was free I just posted about it on my Instagram and then a bunch of people emailed me and I just invited 10 of them to come and I did a little talk about how I research for photo shoots just because you know what it's like on the internet it's so secular like you go on for example Pinterest or something and you click through and then eventually you find yourself looking at all the same stuff again and I feel like so many young people now are finding influence and references from very easy places. So I just wanted to talk to people about how you can find original reference points in this current age. So I did a little chat then, um, Tori Turk and James Hyman from HiMag, which is the world's largest magazine archive, came and spoke about their archive and the importance of magazine publishing and they brought some of their old mags and that was crazy the way that they talk about like people and these weird weekly magazines and they're like yeah this person came and dropped off like 400 of these like tv weekly magazines and they're so buzzing on them and it's like things that other people would just chuck away and not even think of and I love how much they love 
they love it. Um, and my friend Lily Moore, who um, is a researcher for David Sims, came and spoke about her job as a researcher and how she finds interesting places to research. And Sam Bailey, who's a graphic designer, um, came and spoke about his process too. And it was so, I learned so much. So even if the people that came didn't, I had a great time. But <laughs> Isn't yeah. that why you do it in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I want to do some more things like that because it's really nice to be able to... Um, keep learning. Keep learning, yeah, always. Um, yeah, so more stuff like that, really. Cool. Yeah. Final, well, two final questions. Mm -hmm. Where, what is the best way for someone to get in contact with you? Um, email me. Um, my email address is on my website. Um, my Instagram is at Haley Louisa Brown. Um, you can find my website and stuff from there. Um, one of my pet hates is when people send me a DM on Instagram and ask for my email address. I'm like, it's on my website. You're one click away from it. <laughs> Bums me out. I'm like, try, try a little bit. They've been told now. Yeah, don't DM me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You can. I might reply. Um, final question. Anybody mm -hmm. you would like to hear on the show that Ooh. you've been tracking? And I know you spent a lot of time talking to people already, but yeah. is there anybody that you'd want to hear from, hmm. you know, and their, their story of growth? Oh, so Does, many people. Doesn't have to be one. Um, Sital, who does matter. She's on the list. She's on the list. She's the best. Yeah. She's so smart. So I love her. I love talking to her. I could listen to her for hours. Um, I know I mentioned them already, but you should get James and Tori from HiMag on to talk about that because it's a crazy story about how they built this archive and they're really interesting really interesting people oh anyone else oh i know i just know so many really good people that it's hard to think of one name off the top of my head hmm we'll leave it at that yeah <laughs> there's that two do. at least yes hlb Thank Will. you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I hope yeah. I didn't talk too much. Well, that's the idea, right? Okay, yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can cut a bunch out if it's really boring. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Yeah, Thank wish you. you luck in going forward. Thanks. Bye.